Good morning. My name is Merle, and I'm one of the elders here at FBC. And today uh, we'll be reading from the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 23. Do you not know that there are gods, that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. Preceded on the first Sunday of the new year. Thank you, Merle. First Corinthians three sixteen through twenty three. What you believe always shows up in how you live. What you believe always shows up in you in in how you live. Why am I telling you that? Because uh, maybe you already know that, but. Let me try and explain why I'm, why I'm telling you that piece of information. Is this particular passage is one of those passages that talks a lot about what we believe. But let me say it this way. There are some things that you ask somebody in church, and they always know the right answer, but they may not believe the right answer. So there are some churchy kinds of questions. Uh, I don't know, let me think of one. Um, should you share the gospel with your neighbor? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is not. <laughs> I think we're doing the wrong message today. <laughs> yes. Okay, but what's the other question after that one? Have you shared the gospel with your neighbor? So that's one of those questions where we know the right answer, but we don't believe the right answer. Because if we believed it, we would do it. So that's the way it works. Is we, we believe a certain thing, and it always shows up in how you live. So there's lots of things we might say we, we believe are true, but the manner in which we live says, you know, at best, maybe we're still working on working the truth of that belief out in our life, maybe if we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But today we're talking about what we believe and understand about the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, or the church. And so there's lots of things that we are, uh, should understand to be true about Christ and his church that we would say are true, but then how those things get worked out in real time um, betray what we really believe. So the, the key verse here, and it's the title of the message, comes out of uh, the 18th verse, ver, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 18. We're all read it there. Let no one deceive himself. And so 
The title of the message you may have noticed in the worship folder is, Are You Deceived? It's a question because I think it's important as we look at what the Bible teaches is that we ask ourselves. That's the whole idea is to consider the condition of my heart and be willing to admit those areas in my life where I'm living not in the way that reflects the truth of the scripture, but in fact, I'm living in a way that is deceived according to my own devices. So let no one deceive himself. And we want to ask that question, are we deceived? Am I deceived? Are you deceived? This is a, a moment of self-evaluation. The question is not to be answered based on the answer we think ought to be filled out in a, in a fill-in-the-blank or a multiple-choice test, but the answer is a response in how I want to live my life. That's what Paul is getting at here with the believers in 1 Corinthians. Are you deceived? Verses 16 and 17. Are you deceived? First question on that here. So you can answer this question. There's two answers. One is how you know it's supposed to be answered, and the second one is what you actually think. Do you think the church is lame? Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Do you think the church is lame? There's a TV show. I don't know if it's still on. It's called Undercover Boss. And so what happens is a founder of a company or CEO of a company, an important person in a company, goes out to interact with uh, the ground-level employees in warehouses and retail stores and these sorts of things, but this owner or founder of the company or CEO is disguised. Are you familiar with this program? Yes. Okay, good. We don't know if we're supposed to share our gospel with our neighbors, but we are familiar with this program. Okay, I'm being ridiculous. <laughs> So what happens is the person who, the, the employee, doesn't know the, the person they're talking to. And so what happens is what they think about this company comes out unfiltered. They may not realize that this person is the founder of this company. And so to, to, the, to the person who is under, undercover, who is disguised, this company might reflect their life's work. And the values of this company reflects the values of their own heart. They set up this company with particular values and goals in mind and because they have a particular bent and they want that expressed. And, and the employee, though, may not share those values. And sometimes that comes out in the, the discussion. When, when the employee will say, so yeah, they tell us how to do it, but everybody knows it's stupid. Everybody knows it. And, of course, the undercover boss is, everybody knows this? I don't know this, and it's my company. The, 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 the employee doesn't recognize how devoted this person is to the company, and they don't, don't recognize the peril they put themselves in in that moment of honesty of talking about the company in such unfiltered terms. And this is the question Paul is wanting the people of Corinth to reflect on. They behave toward the body of Christ in a way as, that, that Christ isn't there. A casual disregard. In fact, a, an animosity toward some of the members of the body of Christ. In fact, not just a casual disregard and an animosity toward some of the members of the church, but also a condescension, a looking down their informed and brilliant noses at this silly little thing, which is a local church. 
They compare the work of a local body of believers with the work that goes on in the world around them and, and, the, and the conversations they have there compared with the conversations they have uh, at, at school and at work. And they say, this is a, a silly little thing. And what we need to understand from this passage and what Paul wants to confront, not what the answers we would give, but he wants to confront the reality of our heart. He says, we need to understand what God thinks about the body of Christ because he has, a, has an opinion. And like that undercover boss, his opinion really matters, doesn't it? And so are you deceived? Do you think the church is lame? Do we have a casual disregard, maybe even an animosity? Or, or do we look down at the things of a local body of believers and, and, and think it's sort of a silly little thing that's going on there? Look at verse 16. Do you not know? One writer has pointed out that the Apostle Paul doesn't use this particular phrase very often. There's two ways he says this. To the Corinthians there, he says, do you not know? Now, when he uses a similar phrase to the people out of Thessalonica, I had to practice that one for about 20 minutes. When he says this to the people of Thessalonica, he says, surely you know. It's a positive way of saying this, as you already know, but to the Corinthians he says, do you not know? What are we saying? This is a nice way of saying, you can tell Paul is really irritated here. <laughs> He's saying, do you not know, which is you should know better. Do you not know you are God's temple? Look at verse 15. It's just right up above this section. We talked about it last week. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. So what Paul had been discussing, if you want to see, we talked about this last week, he'd been talking about the foundation of the church being the gospel, and then the body of Christ, the people of the church, now worship God through using our gifts to serve God and serve one another and to serve our community, and how do we work as ministers of the gospel in our community in this church? So the, the church is a, a ministry of the gospel to the world around us and to our own hearts. And, 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 and the, the foundation is the gospel. And what he says is the things that we do or that are oriented toward the work of God to save people and to encourage us to love Jesus are things that are gonna last. And the things that we do that serve our own self-interest will be burned up. And so what he is saying here is, is you need to pay attention. A, a day is coming where our view of the church, that's what he has just said, uh, what we covered last week, our view of the church, our view of the work of God through the local body of believers, one day we'll stand before Jesus and he'll help us understand exactly what we thought. Either the work we did in the body of Christ will endure or it will burn up. And so when, when we, we think of the body of Christ as merely a group of people that get together and remind each other that Jesus saves sinners like us, a group of people that get together and remind each other that we need to share the gospel with the people around us, a group of people that get together to encourage, exhort one another towards love and good deeds, to serve one another out of the, the love of Christ and, and one another, some of us look at that notion and we say, well, that's kind of small. I mean, it's kind of a, I mean, that's not really a big deal, is it? That's kind of a trite little, well, so you get together and, and talk about Jesus. Right, that's what we do. What is it, but don't you do anything that matters? 
I mean, that's sort of what we think. I mean, there should be more to it than that. Certainly, there should be more to it than a group of people that encourage one another to love Jesus more and then encourage the world around us to trust Jesus. That's nice. uh, That sounds like a really nice Hallmark movie, maybe. But you know what? But that's not real life. And, and if you want to accomplish something that matters, it's going to have to be something more than merely helping one another trust and love Jesus more. Or merely convincing my neighbor that they ought to love and trust Jesus. We could say that's, that's cute, but in the real world, we need real solutions. We need, we need real fixes. We need better politics and better economics and we need better uh, society in general and we need better families and there's lots of things that we say this is what must fix and until these things are fixed, it's not fixed and the church shows up and says you should love Jesus and we say that is so, (laughs) so naive. It's cute though. I remember back when I was in Five Day Club 2 but you know what? I grew up out of that. And now I realize that the real world has real problems. We need something more than Jesus. That's where the Corinthians are at. That's that's the description of the the church in Corinth. Yes, Jesus was great. Love Jesus, good. Love that forgiveness. But now I've got a real life to live and that Jesus-y stuff doesn't cut it. And Paul is bringing us back and saying, what is the foundation of the body of Christ? The gospel. What is the whole building of the body of Christ? Built on the gospel. And anything not of the gospel is not that building. And now he's saying, you are the temple of God and his spirit spirit dwells in you. Do you not know? You should know and you should live like it matters that you, the body of Christ, the, the church gathered, is God's place of dwelling with us. What Paul is doing here is he's reaching back into the Older Testament and reminding us of the tabernacle built in the wilderness and then reminding us of Solomon's temple built uh, you know, eight or 900 years before Jesus. Reminding us of the second temple uh, rebuilt in Nehemiah and Ezra's days and then renovated by Herod the Great. And he's drawing our minds back to those days and saying, weren't those great temples? I mean, could you imagine worshiping at the tabernacle? Could you imagine worshiping at Solomon's temple? Wouldn't that be incredible? It would be, wouldn't it? And what's he saying? That's what we're doing. He's calling our mind. He said, this is the dwelling place of God. There is no more important place for God than among his people. Now, over in chapter 6, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians, you may or may not turn there. It's up to you. There's two ways he uses this temple of the Holy Spirit's uh, notion. So here, in the passage we're in, I'm just going to draw the contrast and and just then we're going to go back to our passage. Here in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, he's talking about the body of Christ, generally. The, the whole body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians six eighteen, he does the same thing, but he calls us as individuals when we think about, in, in particular, sexual immorality. He says, don't commit sexual immorality because, verse 19, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? that he lives within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. So the temple of the Holy Spirit is the individual, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's me asking you a question. 
Yes. Is the body of Christ the temple of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is, yes, yes it's both. So, but in chapter three, in, verse, in chapter six, when we get there, he's gonna be really coming at you as an individual and saying, why are you committing sexual sin when the Holy Spirit is with you? Do you think he goes on break? Do you think he punches out and says, okay, I'll come back in 20? No. He's there. He's, you're the temple. But in, in chapter 3, he's challenging us as a body of believers to recognize the body of believers is the place where God is dwelling. He dwells among and with his people in a no less significant way than he did with the people of Israel at the tabernacle or at Solomon's temple. Do you not, God's temple, verse uh, 16 again in chapter 3, his spirit dwells in you. We have to understand this, this term dwelling. Is, is, he's talking about a relationship, not a religious understanding. Because when you think about temples, we tend to think in religious terms. You go to temple, and, and the most important thing about going to temple, any religious person, whatever religion you might be, a religious person wants to figure out what they have to do to get God to hear their prayer. That's what religious people are doing. So a person who goes to uh, a, a temple is gonna go there and offer some sort of offering. I, I need to convince God that I've done what is necessary to get him to respond to my prayer. I need, I need someone healed because they're sick. I need more money because I'm broke. I need my enemies to be smitten, smited, smitten. Uh, some of you are gonna send me the, all the tenses of smite so that I get these right. Uh, this is true for all religions. This is true for all religions. So uh, a Muslim is going to uh, go to prayer on Friday. They've got the five pillars that they're going to have to do. They're going to have to pray in a particular direction. They're going to have to listen to the imam. And so, because the goal is, if I check all the religious boxes, God will hear my prayer. That's the hope, right? And, and we tend to think about God's dwelling in religious terms. It's not what's being described because the, the biblical Christian knows there's no box to check for God to hear our prayers. Jesus checked all the boxes. So we trust Jesus and as a result of trusting Jesus, we have forgiveness of sin. So therefore, does God hear our prayer? Yes, he does, always, 100% of the time, always hears our prayer. So those boxes are checked. So we think of dwelling here is not a religious thing. I don't go somewhere to be near God. The, the dwelling here is a relationship. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Of course, Adam and Eve had just sinned, but it says God was walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Do you remember that? I think that's the coolest thing. Why was God walking in the garden in the cool of the day? For the same reason you and I would. It's nice. That's why he made it. He, doesn't, he didn't make the garden because he hates gardens. He made it because he likes gardens. Of course, what he wanted to do was walk through the garden in the cool of the day with us. And we said, we want to walk through the garden in the cool of the day without you. And so could you leave? But this is the dwelling. It's a relational connection. This is better than the Garden of Eden. It is now the experience of the believer that we're always with God. For the person who has relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, there is never any spatial separation. There is never any distance between you and God. There is never any distance between you or God. I had to say that twice, why? Because some of you are arguing, I know how you are. Have you ever felt like there's distance between you and God? 
Yes. When? When you sin, for one, you sin, you feel like God is distant, right? So what have we just learned? Your feelings result in bad theology sometimes. Just because you feel distant from God does not mean God is distant. You have to evaluate if your feelings are providing you accurate data. And your Bible tells you in Christ, Jesus cannot be separated from you. Romans 8, you can go read it on your own. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. So there's never any spatial separation between you and God because of the work of Jesus. There's also never any relational separation between you and God. The relationship does not have to be maintained to keep Christ close to you. Why is that possible? Because we have a high priest who, always, who lives to make intercession for us. So, in order for you to have a relationship with God, you have to maintain that relationship in such a way that God always wants to be near you, which means you need to either never sin or have someone take care of it for you when you do. So Jesus dies for us, raised from the dead, goes to heaven, goes to the right hand of God, and what is his job? Lives to make intercession for you. That's, now as a believer, you, might, you should sort of wonder why that would be the case. Why would Jesus need to live to make intercession for you? He knows how you roll. I mean, it, notice, if you read that, I think it's Hebrews. I don't know, this is off the cuff. I, I think it's in Hebrew. Is it, does it sound like Hebrews? Okay, it feels good. Okay, we'll go with it. Um, it doesn't say he lives to make intercession for you if you need it. Did you notice that? Why? Because that's a given. Yeah. That's, I mean, hello. I mean, what is it? January, I have to look. Is it January 7th? Yeah. Seven days in, some of you made a couple of uh, New Year's resolutions. I don't do that. That's ridiculous. I don't do any of that. Why? Because I'm terrible. I, sh I resolve to not make New Year's resolutions, so I'm winning. Um, he has to make intercession for us because we know, even, we even, some of us even made New Year's resolutions about sin in our life. And it's January 7th. Thankfully, your closeness with God is going to happen not because you kept your resolution, but because he lives to make intercession. That's the nature of our relationship with God in the body of Christ. There is no more important place than the dwelling place of God, and the Bible is telling us that the dwelling place of God is among his people. Verse 17. With that in mind, here comes the warning. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. You are that temple. This is a warning. Matthew 16, 18, we should understand this. Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So can you destroy God's temple? No, so good luck with that. So Paul is not saying here you could destroy the temple, but you could destroy someone else's experience of it. And God's response to us getting in the way of somebody experiencing closeness with God among his people. So getting in the way of that connection, he wants to make sure. Now, I, I don't know how to say this nice. It's turning out I don't know how to say a lot of things nice. Isn't that, maybe I just don't know how to be nice. I'm working on it. I made a New Year's resolution to be nicer this year. 
Have I, have I failed already? Okay. Here we go. He makes intercession for me. Paul is talking to believers. He makes it clear this letter is written to the believers in Corinth. However, he wants someone who would knowingly destroy someone's experience of the body of Christ to have no assurance whatsoever. That's what he's saying there. Someone who would do something to significantly hamper another person's connection with the body of Christ, harm them, sin against them, discourage their faith, Whatever it might be, in the case of the Corinthian believers, there's lots of things going on. There's favoritism to the wealthy going on. There is uh, idol worship that is going on. There is uh, an acceptance of known sin uh, that is going on. There's lots of things going on in this church that are resulting in some individuals saying, you know what, I don't need this church thing. And what Paul is saying for, for us as individuals not that he wants us to doubt our salvation, but somebody that would destroy the, the connection of someone else with the body of believers. He's saying, you shouldn't feel good about that. No, they, let me put it this way. He's saying, if you love Jesus, you wouldn't do that. And he can't give a person assurance if they would get in the way of someone else's connection with the body of Christ. God's response for those who would destroy the body of Christ is significant. Look what he says. I, I, maybe I should read it so you don't think I'm saying this stuff. God will what? What's it say? God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. How serious does God take his body of believers? Really, really serious. Really, really serious. And this is where the warning comes from. He's saying, look, I have gathered my people together in the name of my son, Jesus Christ, a group of people who say we experience righteousness and eternal life through the work of Christ alone. So we're going to come together as believers and recognize that we need to be reminded of the good work of Jesus all the time. And anyone who would take that lightly or look down on it or look for a way to ruin that, he's saying, you should not feel good about your spiritual condition. Because this is the body of Christ. And this is a warning. Are you deceived? Do you think the church is lame? There was a whole bunch of people in the church in Corinth who thought the church just being about Jesus was kind of lame. And Paul is saying, God has an opinion and you'd make, better make sure yours matches up. And we need to look at our own hearts. Are we deceived? To think little of the church is to think much of the world. So the next part of this in verses 18 through 23, are you deceived? Do you think the world is all there is? Let no one deceive himself. This is really the contrast he's putting. The people in Corinth think the church is kind of lame and the world and the wisdom of the world is, is really cool, really great. And they want to be connected with that. And this is where the deception happens. Are you deceived? Do you think the world is all there is? Let me sum up the argument that Paul is going to make here. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, he is trying to say this. So here's a little illustration. My illustrations are always lame. And I admit that. It's fine. So in high school, especially around here, not as much as maybe it is in, in Texas, but we revere uh, the football teams, don't we? 
I'm a, I remember working for a, for a, a sheet metal company when I was uh, just out of college, and uh, break time would come around, we'd sit around, and especially during high school football season, the guys would sit around the, uh, the sheet metal machine, eating our snack, and uh, discuss Friday's game. And you would think we were discussing the most important topic Ever, and, and both coaches, you know, either North or South, they were tore down, lifted up. Oh, my goodness. This was the most important conversation that has ever happened on planet Earth for these guys. There was a, a reverence for high school football. So you can imagine being the, the, the starting star high school quarterback in a town like ours or maybe any small town in Texas. I mean, there's, I mean this is a big deal, isn't it? I mean, this is a person who goes and plays a football game on Friday night. At the end of that game, he gets to talk to news people, right? The only time I talk to news people is because I have to call lawyers, <laughs> right? This guy gets to talk to news people because they want to know something about his experience, and, and he's the star quarterback. And at the moment, if you were asked that young person, about his experiences, the, the star quarterback starting for the high school football team, he would likely think this is the most important thing that's, that's ever happened to me. And this has happened so many times it almost becomes uh, silly. But 20 years later, what's the star high school quarterback doing? I don't know. Hopefully he did well. In all likelihood, not playing football. And now those few football games seems so small, don't they? Once you get a little bit older and you look back in, in retrospect, you know, well, it was fun, it was a good experience, I learned a lot and all that, but at the time, I thought my whole world was this life. And in retrospect, it was such a, a, a small little thing. So what's the Apostle Paul doing? He's saying that notion, that small little thing, is our whole life our whole life, because we have been made in the image of God, we've been designed to live forever with God, someday when we're with him, we're gonna look back on this life and think, why did, I, why did I think that was such a big deal? It seems brilliant in this particular moment to be important in the world. It seems brilliant in this particular moment to be successful in the world. It seems brilliant to be able to navigate through the world systems and have them work to uh, our advantage. And what Paul is gonna say, no, do you know what is brilliant? Is to know the things of God because those are the things that are gonna last forever. That's what he's saying, that's what's brilliant. Now, today, in this age, in this world, nobody values those things. Very few people value those, those things. But those things, the things of God, the things of the truth of the gospel will last for all of time. And the things of this world, the most important, biggest things of this world are just for this time. And someday they will seem a small thing. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. The wisdom of this age right now always seems important. The Christian wants to be wise in what is to come. He says to the person wise in this age, especially this church in Corinth, he says, if he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. And so what, he's, what, what Paul is acknowledging is, for the believer who says, my hope is Christ, my satisfaction is Christ, my comfort is Christ, and I'm not going to seek temporary comforts and satisfactions here. We have to understand the world would look at those things and think that's kind of silly. 
The world doesn't have a problem with religion. You, you realize this, right? The world has no problem with religion because religion is simply, the um, best way I can describe it, I've done this before, but let's just remind us. For the world, life is a salad and religion is just the bacon bits. Just a little something on top to make it, make it okay. And somebody's saying, you put bacon bits on salad? You're right, not bacon bits. Fried bacon that you chop up. I mean, the good stuff. I mean, let's say, if we're gonna put bacon on a salad, it'll just ruin the nutritional value. The lettuce should be wilting under the bacon fat that's rendering on it. That's what should be happening. <laughs> so that's what the world, the world doesn't mind religion. If, if it's just a little bit of Jesus fairy dust on our life. It's like, I got a really good life, I need a little Jesus-y fairy dust to make it just have some significance. The, the world is perfectly fine with that. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I don't want your food, I don't want your world, I don't want your life, I don't want your stuff. I will take Jesus to the exclusion of all of the things. To the exclusion of personal success, to the exclusion of significance in this world and security in this world. I want my comfort, I want my peace, I want my hope, I want my joy, and all of those things to be hitched to an eternal wagon, which is glory. And for the world, that seems silly. And that's what the Corinthians are saying, and so he's saying, no, no, I, I got an idea for you, you should become a fool. You should pursue Jesus with such abandon that the people around you think there's something wrong with you. That's what he's calling us to do. This is bothering some of you. It bothers me a little bit. Let's keep going. Verse 19. The wisdom of this world is folly with God. He catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. God knows what people think. God knows that people think the way he structured creation and redemption. He knows the world thinks he is silly. But God's plan is to make all the world seem foolish on his day. And that day is coming. It hasn't happened yet. But on that day, all of the things of God will be seen for what they are, eternal. And all of the things of this world will see, be seen for what they are, temporary. He applies it for us, thankfully, in verse 21 and 22. So, Whenever there's a so in the Bible, he's about to tell you what to do with it. Let no one boast in men. Because remember, the church is boasting in their brilliant wisdom in Paul and Apollos and Peter and all these other things. And he says this, you set your sights too low. All things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. How can he tell the church that everything is theirs? Really simple. You ready? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible describes you as in Christ. Christ is our brother. He is the firstborn. And, and the Bible says, you can look it up later, Ephesians chapter one, read the whole thing. It's really, really, really good. We are heirs to the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? All the stuff. What did God make? Everything. So to be in Christ is to be heir to the kingdom of God. So what he is saying, why would you boast in your favorite preacher, teacher, evangelist? Why would you preach in your favorite wisdom literature? Why would you, pre uh, why would you boast about your, your success in this world when in Christ you are heir to all that is? Now some of us are saying, I don't feel like I'm heir to all that is. That's because this is the time of faith, but a day is coming when each one of us in Christ will recognize we're heir to the kingdom of God. And so he's saying, why would you boast in such small things? 
think of it this way. There's a guy, he's uh, done a pretty good job of scraping together a couple of bucks. Um, Elon Musk. Heard of this fella? He's pretty good at stacking up dollar bills. Good for him. If he came in one day and he was boasting, I don't know him, so I'm not judging him whether or not he boasts or not, but he boasts that on the way in, he found a nickel. What would you say? You found a nickel. I mean, you've got lots of nickels. Why, why are you, that, what a silly thing for him to boast about, that he found a nickel. Well, that's what we're doing. When we're boasting about the silly things of this world and the things that we think are met, we are heirs to the kingdom of God. That's the, the Corinthian believers, and they're boasting about these things, and, and yet they're heirs to everything that is. And Paul is saying, you've, you've aspired to too little. You set your sights too low and merely said, I want to be successful in this world. He is calling us instead to be members of the body of Christ in a meaningful and significant way. And not stack up dollar bills, but instead build a house of metals that will endure forever based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are Christ and Christ is God, verse 23. That's the gospel. What Paul is doing here by the power of the gospel is trying to reset our ambitions in life. Instead of trying to matter in this world, he is trying to move our hearts as a body of believers to have us matter in the things of God. And if we want to matter in the things of God, God's things will matter to us. And the place of his dwelling is his body, the bride of Christ. All lesser aspirations should be set on a lower shelf. Are you deceived? Do you think the church is lame? Do you think the world is all there is? A couple of questions and we'll end. Think of the closest relationship you have in your life. It might be your spouse. It might be a sibling. It might be a mother or a father. It might be a good friend. What if a good friend of yours came up and insulted your spouse to your face. Your husband is arrogant. Now, you might respond, the sky is blue, water is wet. Tell me something I don't know, right? You might say that. I, <laughs> I don't know. Nonetheless, even if their criticism was accurate, even if their criticism was accurate, would that not create a division between you and that person. For someone to come up and cause harm to the most important person in your life, there is no way you're going to be able to, to just let that fly. You're, you're probably gonna, gonna stand up a little bit and maybe get ready to defend yourself and really come at them. And the body of Christ, the church of Christ is described as his what? His bride. The bride of Christ. All I'm saying is, listen, the church is not a perfect place. It's full of, it's full of us. I'll tell you. We're not home yet. We're not saved yet. I mean, we're not uh, uh, raised yet, is what I meant to say. But Jesus has an opinion about his bride. And we, we ought to make sure we share that opinion. And to the degree we don't, we should at least be honest with ourselves and say we're deceived. Because Jesus loves his bride.
and he knows more about her than we do. One of the ways we can look at our heart. Do we insult Jesus' bride, even if it is in the secret places of our mind? Think about it another way when you think about this. What if you had a good friend, and you say, hey, buddy, let's go, let's go to Joe's. We're going to watch the game this afternoon. You want to do that? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can go to Joe's watch the game. Yeah, it's a big game. Not if you're a Seahawks fan. They don't have big games. <laughs> Always next year. You say, oh, yeah, uh, my wife wants to come. My husband wants to come. My good friend, whoever that close friendship wants to come. Oh, they're going to be there? Never mind. I don't want to come. They're going to, I don't like them. I don't like your wife. I don't like your husband. Whoever it is. That close relationship you have, you say to your buddy, hey, let's meet up. Let's watch the game. And they find out your plus one is coming with you. And, and they say, oh, they're coming? Never mind. How do, we say, how do people say this? You know what? I love Jesus. But, but I don't love his church. That's what people say. I hear this all the time. And you think Jesus is like, oh, okay, that's cool. He was not, he's no more cool with that than you would be if somebody did that. Say, man, I love you, but, but your husband is awful. I love you, but your wife is terrible. I mean, the, likely that relationship is not going to continue. And that's what we do with the bride of Christ. I'm not trying to talk up the bride of Christ. I'm trying to tell you your Savior has an opinion and we need to let that evaluate and challenge our own hearts. Let me put it this way. It is not possible to grow in love of Jesus and not grow in love of his bride, the church. Another way I might say it, and you can argue with me all you want, I don't care. A lack of love for the church indicates a lack of love for Jesus. Acts 20, 28, look it up on your own time. Jesus purchased his church with his blood. That's what it says, Acts 20, 28. Look it up. He purchased his church with his blood. I'm not really into it. I'm not really into it. They're weird. They're old. They're young. There's another guy who purchased a bride. This is to help you. It's in the Older Testament. You might want to read it. Don't read it to your kids. Hosea. Right? What kind of bride did he purchase? Oh, somebody said it. Thanks, Diane. Yeah. <laughs> she had a job on the side. It's a working girl. She's a prostitute. She was, in fact, sold into slavery. And Hosea purchased his bride in fact, the things he, by the way the Bible describes the purchase, he goes into his kitchen and gets half a cup of barley, a couple of good things. He basically scrounged together everything in his cabinet to go and buy this, purchase his bride. And God told him to go and not merely buy her. What did he say to him? Love her. This is Jesus purchased his bride. And then you come at, at me or somebody else and say, well, I've been to the church, and, and the church is yada yada, whatever it might be. Right, he bought the bride. He was not unawares. That's why Hosea is in your Bible, so that you understand the kinds of people God redeems. And this kind of people is the people that he wants to be his bride. And so if you're waiting for the church to measure up to your standards, it is not trying to, and Jesus is not trying to meet your standard. Jesus is wanting you to love the church the way he does. With his kind of love. 
unconditional love. It's not possible to grow in love with Jesus and not for his bride, the church. A lack of love for the church indicates a lack of love for Jesus. I'll stand on that. Jesus, thank you for the love you have given us through the cross, through the open tomb. God, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity not merely to be saved on our own and live by ourselves, but God, you have given us the joy of being redeemed into the people of God. And God, we are thankful that there are churches all over this world that are worshiping, worshiping you today and we are just one of them. But God, I think we need to be honest that at times our hearts have been deceived. We've assumed there are bigger and better things in the world around us than what is going on through your work in the gospel through the body of Christ. And God, there have been times where we have tore down the body of Christ or those in it. And God, there are times where we have not valued your bride. God, we would pray that you would change our hearts to love you and your people with the same love that you have for us. God, we cannot wait till you come and we see your kingdom with our own eyes. But till that day, Lord, give us faith to believe and to allow that faith to transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand up as we close with a song?